Hello, thanks for tuning in and welcome to this week's Zonal Marking Podcast, which is brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ali Maxwell, joined as ever by Warville and Cox. Michael, it's great to have you on the pod. As always, how are things? What have you been writing about? Catch me up uh, with how you're doing before we get into today's topic. Yeah, very well, thank you. Peace, I've just got up on the website today is about Marcelo Bielsa. And uh, I guess questioning the uh, the idea that he's a hugely influential coach. He's obviously a, a fascinating coach and has brought a great excitement to the Premier League this year. But I'm never completely convinced by the argument that he's hugely influential in terms of his impact on the modern game. So, yeah, check that out. Tom, you've been working hard as ever. I hope you're in good form and, and tell me what you've been doing for the athletic site this week. Yeah, one one piece that Coxie and I have been working on together is a bit of a, a similar piece we did on... Um, Lionel Messi but for Cristiano Ronaldo essentially the evolution of Ronaldo uh, how he's changed over time which I'm, I'm really excited to um, for it to come out and then also doing a backgrounder on Dominic Zobersly who is the Salzburg um, wonder kid um, who's linked up to everyone um, so it's a bit of a, a data dive in terms of who he is what he does and, and if he's actually any good Surely you're intrinsically opposed to a wonder kid whose MO is scoring ridiculous goals from 35 yards and taking a lot of low expected goal shots. I don't know. I've got I've got a lot of respect for any any fellow other wonderkins. So um, it doesn't really matter what he does. Um, <laughs> I'm just playing. I'm just playing. Um, we've got a really interesting topic, I think, to, to dive into today. And Coxie, I was hoping you could give us a brief intro into it before we get stuck in. Yeah, we're going to be chatting about Premier League players who we think play unusual roles or play a role that's quite specific to their team. A few of them in the Premier League who are maybe not quite interesting enough for a podcast of their own, but I think combine five or six together and we should have a good chat today. Yeah, and it's part of the sort of themes that we would like to touch on on this pod. And I think there are probably before we dive into the individuals that there is a, a, a wider discussion to be had about positions and about roles and about our definitions to a certain extent as well. Uh, while we were researching this, while we were planning this pod, Michael, one of the things that kept cropping up to me was, are, are players still, even in the modern game, being defined too narrowly in terms of this is a player and he plays in X position, or if you like, in X role within a certain position? Uh, are we still doing that too narrowly? Are we too too narrow-minded with the way that we pigeonhole players? Yeah, probably. I mean, there's a lot of modern coaches who would get quite annoyed if you say a player is a right-back. You can say they play right-back, but no, a player is a, a collection of attributes and qualities and in different systems they may play in different positions. So I think, yes, there's there's probably too much of... Uh, too much categorization, and I think you know the the fact that football has become more universal in recent years. There is, I think, more similarity between a defender and a midfielder these days than there were 20, 25 years ago. Means it's increasingly viable for players to to switch positions. And I think one good sign of a, a good manager is they're often able to kind of transform a player um, from what he was previously into a new role. So, yeah, I think you're probably right on that. And Tom, uh, would you say that the, the modern managers seem more likely to mix it up in terms of a player role and, and try a player out in, in a new position? It, it feels like, well, we've got plenty of examples to come over the course of the next half hour. And it feels like seeing someone being played nominally out of position is is less weird than it used to be yeah for sure it just it just feels less surprising really I think that a couple of examples we were, were talking about pre-pod were I guess Fabinho playing centre-back for, for Liverpool now that that really doesn't 
cause any ripples in in the football sphere, so to speak. When uh, you know when he starts playing there, we're just kind of used to defensive midfielders slotting in um, at centre back. We're used to um, fullback slotting into to midfield, and I think that that example, I guess, is Stuart Dallas uh, leads, which we'll get onto. So I just think that maybe it's just a recent development that positional versatility is more of a part of the game, and therefore it's just a lot less surprising when when we see it happening. And I think there's something to be said for this happening increasingly in the women's game as well, maybe even more than in the men's game. I mean, I often look at the Chelsea side, I'm not quite sure who's playing as the fullback, and it turns out it could be three or four players, and they all do it quite well. Leah Williamson at Arsenal came through as a creative midfielder and is now playing as a you know a pretty solid centre-back because centre-back play in the WSL is so much more about passing than it is about aerial dominance, as we probably still think of it in uh, in men's football so yeah maybe that's something we can explore at a later date with uh, Katie Wyatt who's our new women's football correspondent yeah definitely um, let's focus on some individual cases then some positional quirkiness and the example that's probably freshest in the mind is Monday night Wolves against Southampton Wolves doing a lot of quirky things here Michael not only setting up in a back four but also very unusual way of uh, of choosing which centre-back plays on which side. Yeah, uh, about six hours before that game kicked off, I'd written something about Wolves and said, Nuno always plays a back three. That's the one thing you can be sure of. And then sure enough, they went and played, or he went and played a back four for the first time since Wolves got promoted to the Premier League because Connor Cody was out for the first time since Wolves got promoted to the Premier League. Um, so that was interesting itself. And then it became even more interesting because it emerged that the left footer, Kilman was playing to the right of the centre-back partnership and the right footer, Willy Bolly, was playing to the left, which I don't think I've ever seen before. So, yeah, I found that very intriguing. I mean, we've done a whole podcast on left-footed centre-backs, Tom. You even talked about angles of passing. And, I mean, after that, I, was, I never wanted to see a, a right-footed centre-back in the left centre-back slot ever again so what did you make of Nuno ripping up the rule book yeah he's um he's he's read my article and thrown it in the bin quite frankly um <laughs> I was it was definitely something something new and, and different and I mean yeah like like Cox was saying I don't think we've seen really done before in the Premier League um I kind of wondered whether it was just to try and focus their their passes more infield but just looking at the combinations it didn't look like that was the case at all I think that Kilman's most common pass receiver was was Willie Bolly and then after that I think it was Semedo so even though there was a three-man midfield of Dendonka Nebesh and Moutinho it didn't seem like the focus was to actually funnel the ball inside to them Michael I doubt you've got much confidence now when it comes to second guessing Nuno but have you got any theories on this no I there's some decent ones in the responses to to me on Twitter which I'm going to put forward here I mean some suggested it was to do with Southampton's press and the fact that they often show the opponents kind of inside they box them into a kind of a central press and that would make it easier for players to to kind of turn inside and switch play easily a couple of Wolves fans actually pointed out they have done it in a back three I mean they have played Roman Saiz to the right and Willy Burley to the left with Conor Cody in the middle. I hadn't really thought about that before. I assumed that was just because Saiz had come in for Bennett and Bennett was right-footed. Saiz was the newcomer. So I thought they were just kind of trying to keep it the same. But apparently Nuno had tried it beforehand in pre-season matches. So maybe there is something, you know, a wider theory. Um, but to be honest, I don't have a conclusive explanation. I don't think Nuno was asked about it after the game. But I think the main thing to note here is that whatever the reason, 
they switched to their proper sides at half time, so it clearly <laughs> didn't work very well. I really enjoyed uh, jumping into that Twitter thread and seeing everyone was just shouting inverted centre backs at you with <laughs> varying numbers of exclamation marks afterwards. So um, I think the the previous pod I was on, we spoke about you invented the inverted winger. Uh, potentially, this is the uh, the next one on that production line. And we talked about Southampton the other day, didn't we? On our overachievers podcast, we talked about that press, which may have been in the forefront of Nuno's mind when making this slightly strange decision and then switching it back at half time. At Wolves, were certainly struggling with the movement up top weren't they of, of Walcott and also Tom of a man who's, who's surely an early season contender for the most improved player award that I've just created Che Adams stepping up big time for Saints this season he's a bit like a budget Harry Kane in, in the respect that he both creates and scores um, I was looking at kind of his expected goals and expected assist data and I think that if you look at guys who've combined for at least 0.25 xg and xa per 90 um which you know puts him in the top 10 percent of um or, or top 10 attackers in the league he's actually level with Grealish and, and Salah for the the volume and quality of chances he creates so um yeah Chadham's one that I don't think I've read or seen much about um, but he's definitely having a, a fantastic season as that you know nine and a half as we uh as we have <laughs> to call it now to be clear Tom budget Harry Kane very much meant as a compliment in this case yeah the same way that I might be deemed a budget Michael Cox (laughs) okay okay well Michael let's go back to Wolves quickly before we move on because it wasn't just the centre-backs that you found interesting but also the role of Pedro Neto yeah so in that thing I was writing before Nuno ripped up the rule book I was basically writing about the fact that Wolves I mean since they got promoted to the Premier League what two and a bit years ago Nuno's always played either 3-5-2 or 3-4-3 and you could always kind of tell which system he was going to use by his team sheet because you know if Dendonka was in as a third central midfielder it was a 3-5-2 if there were three outright forwards it would clearly be a 3-4-3 but I've been interested in yeah Pedro Neto who has played almost a half and half role he's capable of playing in the front three he's also capable of playing as an extra central midfielder Nuno often talks about him dropping a line when they lose possession i.e. dropping back from the forward line into the midfield line I think it gives that kind of tactical flexibility that in a way Wolves haven't always had they've been very well organized but not necessarily that flexible within games and I think it's quite interesting because I thought of Neto as just a pure forward really before I saw this and I don't think there's too many other players who you would think really would be comfortable doing that. I mean, maybe Jack Grealish would be the type who could do it. He's happy, wide in a three. He's also more comfortable. I think his favoured position is as a number eight. So yeah, there's not too many players I think would be capable of doing that. And I don't think there's any other players who really are doing that on a regular basis. Okay, let's talk about what was probably the game of the weekend in the Premier League. That was Spurs to Manchester City nil. Many people calling it a classic Mourinho masterclass. But Coxie, we're going to focus on some of the players involved. You were especially interested in the roles of Sissoko and Hoiberg in Mourinho's game plan. Yeah, I thought what they did was really interesting. It was evident from the first minute, actually, with both Hoiberg and then later Sissoko, who were doing the same thing. They were basically dropping into the channel between Spurs fullback and centre-back on their side, obviously, and making a back five without the ball. And we've seen a, a bit of flexibility between a back four and a back five from various managers over the last couple of seasons, including Mourinho. But I'm not sure I've really seen a player doing it in that manner, you know, dropping between the fullback and the centre-back. So, yeah, I mean, it was evident from the first minute and I think it was pretty effective throughout the game. Another thing with, with Hoybier and, and Sissoko is that, and I don't think I've seen it at all otherwise uh, this season in the Premier League, but um, in the, the ruled-out goal for City and the build-up to it, I think they doubled up on the um, 
I'm not sure who was on the ball for City, but the City attacker was on kind of the right-hand side of the box. They were like doubling up on him, and I don't think I've actually seen that for, for a while. I just find it interesting that they've both got, I mean, Hoibio especially, he's just got so much energy to run around and cover spaces that he can even, um, you know, instead of marking the space outside the box or in it, he was, you know, capable of doubling up and then running back um, to kind of fulfil his space and, and stop any passes coming to the box. So I thought that was a, probably just a bit of a one-off, but I hadn't seen it um, happen for a while. It's funny that you bring up Sissoko, particularly Michael, because I, I definitely had one of those rare moments watching that game. And it wasn't even that near the beginning of the game where... I, I had to sort of check myself and say, is that Sissoko in that position? Uh, in which case, he's not playing the role I thought he was playing. And now you're explaining that he had something of a, a dual role. What was the purpose behind that, do you think? Well, I think Mourinho was afraid that Spurs' bat line would be overloaded five against four. I mean, that's what City really liked to do. They like to form a, a front five in possession. And of course, part of this is, you know, I think you've got to track the runs of De Bruyne. He's so good in that right-hand channel and therefore Hoiberg was often dropping in to become almost a left-sided centre-back to stop him. But yeah, Sissoko was doing the same on the opposite side with with Bernardo Silva's runs. I think the danger of that, obviously, is you end up weak in midfield if one of your central midfielders is not playing in midfield. But the quality they have there is they have uh, Ndombele, who is playing as the number 10. He's maybe not a classic number 10 in the sense he's not really a kind of deep-lying forward. But the fact that he is comfortable as a central midfielder was perfect here because he could drop in, he could sit alongside whichever the central midfielders wasn't dropping in. And then Spurs didn't really have that problem in midfield. Yeah, Ndombele for me, I'm glad you mentioned him, Michael, because he's just, I think he's one of the most fun players to watch in the Premier League at the moment. I mean, his his press resistance, his ability to, to manipulate his body and, and wriggle away from you know from oncoming defenders is, is second to none I feel at this stage. And he really disguises some of his passes really nicely as well. He'll kind of he, he won't kind of show you with his body position where the pass is going to go. And I think that those passes where, you know, the player might be side on but they manage to play a really nice vertical ball upfield are some of the most A aesthetically pleasing and B um kind of useful passes in the game. So yeah, he was for me a you know, Soko and, and Hoibier are so versatile and, and have so much utility, but Ndombele is just really, really good to watch. Coxie, Pep Guardiola employing some funky fullback formatting is, is nothing new. And on the weekend and at the moment, it, it's Cancelo, really, who's playing what is really, in general terms, quite an unusual role as well. Yeah, I mean, Guardiola's done this for the last few years, hasn't he? Particularly at Bayern, where he had Alaba and Lam, who he could use as kind of half a fullback and half a central midfielder. Yeah, and he's done it at Manchester City. I don't think always that's been his intention. You know, he brought in Benjamin Mendy because he wanted a proper overlapping left-back at times. But I think the players who have most regularly played there have been probably Zinchenko and Delph, who are converted central midfielders. I mean, Cancelo's different because he's right-footed. So I think he's quite different from the ones who played it before. And I think the interesting thing is he's still been quite a good crosser this season. In fact, I think he's done really well at left-back. I thought he was their best player in City's one-all draw at West Ham. He set up... Phil Foden's equaliser. I thought he was really good against Liverpool too. Um, he set up very good headed chance for Gabriel Jesus, who I thought just miscued it wide completely. But yeah, he's been very impressive on that side. And I don't think he probably expected to play there when he came to City. He's obviously more of a right back and is now playing as yeah half left back, half central midfielder. <laughs> the obvious question to the man who invented the phrase inverted winger is, are we calling this inverted fullback yeah so I'm I'm not going for that I'm going for half back I wouldn't call them inverted because for me that's when you've got two fullbacks one who's right footed and one who's left footed and you switch them I've never really seen that 
But, you know, that's the equivalent of what wingers are. Robin and Ribery at Bayern, for example. Or indeed Bolly and Kilman as centre-backs for Wolves. I think there's more <laughs> of a case for calling them inverted than the full-backs. But yeah, for me, it's not so much about what foot they use. It's just about the position. I mean, half-back comes from the old 2-3-5 pyramid system. So the players to the wide areas of the three-man midfield were half-backs. That's more or less what these players do in those positions. And it also relates to, I mean, there's this German term that has found popularity in England, half spaces which is roughly equivalent to the channels and it's called that in Germany because that's where the half backs and the wing halves would play so it's the space for the half players so yeah I think mm. half back probably makes most sense makes me think of when Zinedine Zidane won no- number five for Real Madrid and they said it's because he was half of the player he was wearing <laughs> number 10 for France hello I'm Ian McIntosh and despite literally spending months of my life playing football manager I'm still terrible at it. That's why I'm launching The Football Manager Show, the latest podcast from The Athletic. Every week, I'll speak to the people who know the game best, the people who make the game. We'll take a proper look at things like training, recruitment and tactics. We'll try to answer your questions. We'll do everything we can to keep you eager to play just one more game and altogether less inclined to quit without saving. The era of Cherno and Tonton and dear sweet Michael Duff is over. The new football manager is bigger, better, more challenging than ever. And I need some help. If you do too, you can subscribe now. Just look for the Football Manager Show by The Athletic, wherever you get all your other podcasts. It starts in November, and knowing my track record, I'll be unemployed by December. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. And Tom, the numbers, the data can be really handy here because... A lot of people watch football with their aesthetics hat on and don't like to see fullbacks playing on their ostensibly weaker side, a right-footed player playing left-back, for example. But Cancelo, in chance creation terms, is looking pretty good in this role. Yeah, I mean, if we look at the data since the start of last season, he's he's really, really positive and strong in terms of just getting touched in the box, getting shots away, and, and even his, the, the quality of his chances he's creating in terms of his expected assists is, is up there. It's the third highest in the league. It's higher than um, Andy Robertson um, and Lucas Digne, who are probably you know, two of the players we think of more as, as out-and-out chance creators. Interestingly, I think this is because set pieces are, are included in the totes I have, I'm looking at. Trent Alexander-Arnold is, of course, the the kind of best chance creator from fullback. But second is um, Ahmed El Mahamadi for Aston Villa. Um, <laughs> small small sample of just nearly nine hundred minutes, but um, but still quite interesting. But yeah, I, th- I think that Cancelo definitely is one that is just an option that City haven't had really for a while. That of just like consistent chance creation. I think that Mendy was a really good option to start with and obviously has had his troubles and Zinchenko very much looks like a converted central midfielder playing fullback. Like he just doesn't have the, I don't think he has the, the pace. I don't think he is as good in one-on-one situations to, uh, you know, as Cancelo is. Okay, and uh, one that interests me specifically as a huge EFL nerd is James Justin uh, of Leicester. He is also 
a right footer playing at left back, albeit someone that's been doing that for quite a while, having played that role for Luton as well. What do you make of him in that role for Leicester this season? Yeah, Justin's one that I focused on um, a couple of weeks back, actually, for a piece on on Leicester's fullbacks and a few other kind of tactical trends of Leicester's this season. And at the start of the season, Justin, when he was kind of in the left side of the back four instead of now he's kind of the left side of this this back three, was he's really keen on kind of being the spare man when there was an attack going forward. He'd always kind of time late runs into the box. He would be on the shoulder of the... Um, the shoulder of the fullback, similar to say we saw with, with Theo Walcott's goal against Wolves um, on Monday night. Um, so yeah, he he was one who was doing really you know positive attacking work. Um, but in the weeks that have passed, I think that we've started to see that uh, it's kind of limited attacking potential, or at least it's not been unlocked to the same extent as it was at Luton. Um, he's getting far fewer shots now. He's not creating chances. He's not really progressing the ball upfield as as effectively as he was. So Justin is. It's an interesting one because I still feel he makes those runs, but he's just not getting the ball. He's not kind of um, being picked out and therefore he's obviously not, not getting the uh, the numbers. Yeah, I think the interesting thing about Leicester as well is for the first five games of the season, I think they fielded an 11 that didn't have a single left foot player. So yeah, it was often Justin who was on the left. But the other option there is Timothy Castan, who obviously came in from Atalanta, has generally played right back and done very well. But he played roughly equally for Atalanta on the left and on the right. And obviously the player who has got to come back is Ricardo Pereira, who I think we're looking at the turn of the year for his return from injury. I think Ricardo Pereira is maybe, aside from Alexander Arnold, probably the best fullback in the league. So I can't imagine that he won't be a regular. So it looks as if it will be Justin and Castan who are competing for the left-back slot. Leicester now have slightly changed system. They've gone to back three. And because of that, Christian Fuchs has come into the side. Obviously, he is a natural left footer. But yeah, it was interesting to see them play 11 right footers and not really suffer in terms of a lack of balance. There's another side that are using the nominal left back or left wing back role in different ways. It's Arsenal. Michael, talk me through their situation at left wing back. Yeah, so that's been very interesting from a couple of players, both Bakayo Saka and Ainsley Maitland-Niles have both interpreted that position in an interesting way. They kind of start as a left wing back and then they push inside uh, when Arsenal have possession to become a central midfielder. That's been interesting because I think it's harmed the pressing shape of the opposition. I think sometimes the right wing is dragged inside. That can open up space for Kieran Tierney to push forward almost on the overlap. I think Tierney's been... Absolutely exceptional as both a kind of third centre-back and also an overlapping wing-back at times. And it's also allowed Aubameyang to drop a little bit deep, drag the full-back up and then go in behind, which really was Arsenal's main strategy in the FA Cup final where he kept on doing that to Rhys James and Arsenal kept on uh, really launching big diagonal balls, usually from David Luiz, in behind. And that gave him the breakthrough, I think, with the penalty came from that. Um, and of course, Aubameyang scored the, the second goal as well, proving he can play on the left, despite a lot of people's uh, objections to him <laughs> in that position. And I think th- this kind of system, it can also force the opposition midfield across to shut down Saka or, or, or Maitland-Niles when they don't expect. You know, they think they're just going to be up against two central midfielders. Then they realise one of the central midfielders has to push across and cope with a third player in that zone. And that sometimes leaves space as everyone gets dragged over on the far side. I think Arsenal have played a lot of switches to Bellerin in space, which often has been their, their best outlet, really. And then Bellerin can charge forward in possession. So, yeah, it's been interesting. And uh, I think at times, particularly the back end of last season in those two games at Wembley, uh, really effective. Tom, both of these players are to some extent in the category of 
what is your best position? And maybe after what we said at the top of the show, we shouldn't ask those sorts of questions because the, the ability to interpret different roles and to perform in different roles is so important. But certainly with Maitland-Niles and Saka, although he's still so young, I wouldn't necessarily know or say with confidence, this is their best position. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, I think you'd struggle definitely to, to pin down their best roles. I think that Maitland-Niles was, was really keen to actually leave in the summer. And I think that Wolves were a touted destination because he was so so hell-bent on playing in central midfield. Um, I remember he, he was actually, I think he started in the, the midfield that Arsenal deployed against um, Man United in the 8-2 game, I think. Um and I thought he was he was okay in that game. He was pretty good for given he was a couple of years younger than he is now. Um, but Saka's just he's just a really weird football footballer where he is. I guess normally you'd have him down as a utility player if you're looking at kind of the way that positions were deemed of old. And he he you know attempts a lot of take ons. He's pretty good at them. He gets in the box a lot. But also I think the the best thing about his game is just his intelligent runs. Um, he came on against Leeds at the weekend. Was essentially playing in in that kind of very narrow front three and had an excellent one on one chance that um, Ilan uh, Melier did so well to kind of scramble across and and, and stop. So I do wonder with with Maitland Niles and Saka if they just need to stand up for themselves and say to Arteta, actually, I, I just want to play left back or I just want to play central <laughs> midfield because they're getting dragged around the pitch like every single game. But yeah, I I think that I do wonder what the implications are really for in terms of player development for Saka. Um, will you learn a lot from playing in different positions or will that fail to help you kind of specialise and nail down a, a position in the side longer term? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, to me, they almost seem slightly different categories of players because I think Saka has the potential to be one of the best players in the league and maybe you do want a more permanent position. But Maitland-Niles, with respect, I think if he was to leave Arsenal, he'd probably be going to a kind of mid-table side at best. And I think Arsenal over the years have sometimes not really appreciated the value of a versatile player. You know, someone like... Oxlade-Chamberlain, for example, there are always questions about what's his best position. But sometimes I, I just think, I mean, compare Arsenal to kind of Manchester United in those years where they were kind of, you know, still rivals. And Manchester United always had players who, you know, were versatile, could do a different job, uh, do a different job each week. You know, someone like Park Ji-sung, what was his best position? I, I don't know, really. He could play, you know, equally well in probably three different roles, but it didn't really matter because he was so useful in big games. And I, uh, what I like about Arteta is I think he appreciates the value of those players and, uh, yeah, is, is capable of using players quite well tactically in a way that maybe Arsene Wenger didn't. And just to continue on this theme of fullback funkiness, we're talking about Arsenal, we're talking about Arteta. Previously, we spoke about Cancelo and Pep Guardiola, who Arteta worked under for, for many years. Uh, is this a, a different use of fullbacks from Pep's use of Cancelo, Coxie, or is this the same sort of thing? I think it's a little bit different. I think Arteta's is more about possession play and disrupting the, the pressing of the opposition. I think Guardiola's primary use of players in that position is to prevent counterattacks. I mean, I think that's partly what he tried to do against Tottenham. Obviously, it didn't work because Son was used to that side and was very happy going down the outside and running in behind. I think Cancelo struggled with that. But it was quite interesting. In the game between Arsenal and Manchester City at the Etihad on match day five, Cancelo was playing as a right-back that day because Carl Walker was right centre-back to cope against Aubameyang's speed. And you had both Cancelo and Saka starting as a full-back or a wing-back and moving inside into central midfield. And they were almost man-marking each other the whole game, making the same movements. The game almost happened around them. So, yeah, I think they're playing a very, well, a very similar role in terms of the positions, but maybe for a different reason. 
But Saka and Maitland-Niles themselves, it's not like they're just being plugged in to do the same job because they're, they're different players, aren't they? They've got different skill sets. So talk me through the difference between those two individual players. Yeah, I mean, I think Saka's much more creative. I, I think there's a couple of games this season, one at home to, was it West Ham maybe, where he created both goals with through balls. I think Maitland-Niles is a bit more functional. But that said, I mean, I really like Saka at left-back too. When I think when, when Arteta first came in, he was used as a kind of overlapping left-back before Tierney was in the side. So that's where Arsenal got their left-footed balance from down that side. I think he's really, really good. I, I don't think it's inconceivable that barring a couple of kind of injuries or whatever, he could play left-back for England in the summer because I really think he's that good in terms of getting him in the side and in terms of his defensive discipline as well. I do feel that Saka's versatility will hopefully pay dividends down the line. It does seem that Arteta's favoured formation is going to be a 4-3-3 and, and he is kind of slowly building the pieces to try and move towards that. And I do feel that this 3-4-3 at the moment is, is just a bit of a stopgap. So um, if you're looking at, you know, Tierney is going to be the starting left-back for Arsenal for, for probably many years at this point. Is Saka like dynamic enough to play in, in one of those kind of front three uh, in the 4-3-3? I'm not entirely sure, but as a, you know, being able to be one of these free eights and sit alongside Thomas Partey, again, this is where his his difference to Maitland-Niles in terms of he's he's more dynamic, he's a, a good He's a good passer. Like I said before, he makes really smart runs. I think those kind of attributes will will serve him well if that's eventually where Arteta wants to decide to be at. Still only 19, of course, Saka. Plenty of development of his game and positionally as well to come. Okay, just a couple of other examples before we wrap up. Michael, you're taking us away from the Premier League for this one, a game that you watched and enjoyed on the weekend. Yeah, so on the subject of kind of unusual wing-backs, I really enjoyed Atletico Madrid's performance at the weekend against Barcelona in a 1-0 win. From the team sheet, I assume this was a, a kind of classic Simeone 4-4-2. But Yannick Carrasco was the key player here because he dropped back to mark... Uh, Usman Dembele, who was playing on the right for Barcelona. I guess it was a little bit like Mourinho's tactics to form a five-man defence almost in a certain phase of the game. And that turned Atletico from a 4-4-2 into a 5-3-2 with Carrasco as the left wing-back. But the interesting thing was that as well as doing a decent job, not a perfect job against Dembele because he did get in a couple of times, but a decent job by and large, he then really led the counter-attacks, you know, coming from deep and the fact that Dembele wasn't seeking to track back with him meant that he was often the one who dribbled forward. He was making storming runs almost in behind the defence. I think he got caught offside a couple of times. And that's what led to the opener. He basically yeah, just sprinted forward when Atletico won the ball. No one really tracked his run. And he ended up being played in for one-on-one with Ter Stegen. And Ter Stegen misjudged it quite badly and got bypassed about 45 yards from his goal. And Carrasco curled the ball in from about 30 yards. So... Yeah, it was one of those games that was great for me. I watched it 30 minutes in and thought, Carrasco's really interesting here. I'm going to have to write about him. And then he goes and scores the winner. Perfect. Yeah, that's the dream, I guess, for, for a tactics writer. Tom, it struck me, listening to Michael talk about Carrasco, that in many of these cases, we're looking at a player, you know, not not any player can just morph into to different roles within the same game. And not, not any player can have this universality of, of being able to play in a number of very different roles on the pitch. And and one of the sort of key similarities, I guess, is intelligence, footballing intelligence. That's kind of obvious, I think, being able to carry out instructions um, very, very closely. But also, certainly in Carrasco's case, insane athleticism and stamina as well to be able to physically move yourself from position to position. 
you know, after a transition of, of possession. And I suppose Sissoko w- would fall into that category as well, having done it on the weekend. And I guess I say all that to lead into the last man that we're going to talk about, Stuart Dallas of Leeds United, who I've watched over the last two or three seasons play almost every single position on the pitch. And he's never been considered, even at championship level, one of the most one of the most impressive players technically. But for Bielsa and for what Bielsa wants his teams to do, Stuart Dallas is the absolute superstar in many ways. Yeah, definitely. Dallas is, I guess, epitomises this halfback idea. And for me, I think that his most similar player that comes to mind to him is, is maybe Joshua Kimmich at, at Bayern Munich. Just the way that he you know, started at, at wide as a, as a fullback and then came inside in kind of this, this double pivot. But Dallas kind of regularly from left back would, would cut and field as part of the Bielsa system and, and, and kind of move and help progress play through there um, and then is actually you know able to start in midfield just because he knows that role so well from, from cutting it from fullback and I think it's the same maybe to a lesser extent than the other side with, with Alioski he again is so used to kind of cutting inside from 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 left back into midfield and yeah the I mean if we're, we're coming a bit full circle here on, on, on you know talk about Coxie's piece to start with about Bielsa but maybe one role that we haven't mentioned at all and we should is just the fact that Bielsa so often will play a second striker kind of in midfield like with with Rodrigo or with with Tyler Roberts which to me is again one of the more kind of weird positions that has been so common at the championship the last few years under Bielsa Um, and we've I guess we've not really seen that um, so much in in the Premier League especially having a a 4-1-4-1 that's so well defined as as Leeds is, um, is. It's a classic structure mentioned something at the very start and come back to it at the very end they don't let me anywhere near the site in written terms so I'm having to sort of try out all of these things on the pod. Thank you both guys for talking me through this today really really interesting stuff and I think just a, a a great example of why we wanted to do this podcast so thank you both for your time and your expertise as well and, and you guys listening I've no doubt that during this you'll have been thinking of other examples there are plenty of them of course and it'd be great to hear from you you can tweet any or all of us if you like with any interesting things you've seen we're always keen to to hear about that and look into it more and who knows could be a potential topic for the pod in future so thank you for listening please make sure you're subscribed to this Uh, we're doing different things every week and really enjoying ourselves at the moment so please do be a part of it of course you can listen for free on any podcast platform but you can also listen ad-free if you're a subscriber of The Athletic site. Theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking is a code that you can use to sign up. And all I'm going to say here is it's Black Friday this week, the week that we're recording. We're recording on Wednesday morning. If you hold tight towards the end of the week, take a look for a Black Friday offer for a very, very good price for your annual subscription and do make the most of that thank you for listening go and read tom and michael's work on the athletic site and app and join us again next week on the zonal marking podcast brought to you by the athletic